Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're, glad you're here. Wide awake and all that good stuff. Hopefully you'll stay that way in the next half hour or so. Hey, have you ever been one of those, uh, those movies that you, you, you have to wear the special 3D glasses to see things, you know, these crazy colored glasses that, ooh, wow, jeez. It's like a horror movie out here. Um, and, and when you put these things on, you, you see things that you never really would, would have been able to see. Wouldn't it be kind of interesting to have 3D spiritual glasses that you could put on and be able to see people like they really are, to, to see really beyond the surface, see into the heart. I talked last week about the hole in our soul, uh, the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve ate it plunged all of God's creation and all of humanity into rebellion and spiritual death. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, Satan deceived Eve and he said, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's the great temptation, it's the great deception. Eat of that fruit and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Man's obsession to be like God um, pushed him away from God to live autonomously, to live independently of God. Thanks, God. I've got it from here. Don't need you anymore. I think I can handle life. The implications of that um, original sin are incomprehensibly horrific. Let me just share with you four implications real quickly of that uh, original sin. Uh, first one is spiritual death. We talked about this last week, alienation. Death is not necessarily um, annihilation or ceasing to exist. It has the idea of being separated from, being alienated from. Man was separated from the only source of life, from the only source of meaning and purpose, and that was God himself. And because man was separated from God, it also meant that he was separated from everything God had created. Man is separated from each other. The woman who you gave me, and now there's alienation between man and man, and woman and woman, and man and woman. Man is alienated from within himself. I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid. I hid myself. Fear. Man separated from within himself. He's fearful for the first time. Ultimately, it's the soul separated from the body and death, and, and the greatest tragedy, man separated from God from all eternity. Spiritual death, alienation. But secondly, not only did man die spiritually, there was a change of nature. The Bible teaches that man became a sinner. Romans 3, 9 and 10, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Man fell under the condemnation of God to be a sinner. It's not that we're a sinner because we sin. We sin because it is our nature to sin. We're sinners. 
We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Thirdly, man was placed under the power, under the domain, under the sway of the evil one, placed under the power of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God of this world holds this world under its sway. He blinds the minds, and they don't understand the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course, let me back up, according to the course of the power of the air, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, under the control, under the sway of the evil one, which is what 1 John 5, 19, this whole world lies in the grip, in the power, under the sway of the evil one. It's part of the results, the implications of the original sin. Mankind comes under the power of the evil one. And fourthly, man is condemned to serve sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, one verse that says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in the condemnation of all men. One transgression, Adam sinned, and all mankind after that experiences condemnation. Now, if you remember back in our study of Romans chapter 5, that word condemnation is a word that has to do with the, 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 the penalty that is pronounced on the, um, on the guilty sinner. It's, a judge lowers his gavel, the sentence of guilt has been pronounced, and now um, the punishment is meted out, is pronounced. You will now do 10 years of hard labor because of this crime. You're a criminal. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, but what resulted was a pronouncement of a penalty, and that is you will serve sin. Sin will be your master. Everybody born in this world is born in sin and is under the enslavement of sin. That's one of the implications of this original sin. Um, and it affects all of God's creation. It is pervasive. No one can get away from it. It's not that a person is born with a blank slate and then over time, you know, how well nurtured he is or what the nature of the environment is will be inputted on that blank slate. No, it doesn't work that way according to the Bible. We're all born in sin. Let me once again quote from that 17th century uh, French physician and, uh, or physicist and mathematician Blaise Pascal in his work, Pensees. I mentioned it last week, but I've got an extended quote, and boy, is he spot on. Written in the 1600s, he said, man without faith can know neither true good nor justice. All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both. 
but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end, the search for happiness. This is the motive of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. Yet, for very many years, no one without faith has ever reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming. So, while the present never satisfied, experience deceives us and leads us on from one misfortune to another until, until death comes as the ultimate and eternal climax. And then he said this, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man, there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print but a trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite, immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Man, is that not a picture of humanity? Inner cravings. Inner cravings because created in the image of God, those inner cravings are there because we are created in the image of God. Longing for something that we've been created for, but never finding it because we've pushed God out of the picture. We're born under the power and the sway of the evil one. We are under the enslavement of sin, the pronouncement of the penalty. We are under sin and have experienced alienation from God, spiritual death. We are created for fellowship and communion with God, and we're only capable of finding real joy and real meaning in that relationship, but because we're born in sin and desire to live autonomously and independent from God, there is this infinite abyss. The two, the two gay neighbors that just moved in next door to you, what do you see? How do you view them? Do you see them as two people created in the image of God, but having an infinite abyss in their soul and trying to fill it with illicit love, thinking that that's where they're going to find their happiness and their wholeness, when in reality what they need is God himself? That obnoxious coworker who's loud and brash and arrogant, what do you see? What do you see? Someone to avoid at all costs, you know, go around go the, the hallway so you don't bump into this idiot? Or do we see a person created in the image of God who's got an infinite abyss in his heart? And he's trying desperately to fill that hole in his soul with everything where he bloviates all over people everything but God himself. That seventh grade bully who what he really needs is his ears boxed in. <laughs> but what does he really need? Do we see him as a kid who's created in the image of God who has an infinite abyss 
in his soul, the hole in his soul, and he's trying to fill it in all the wrong ways because, you see, only God can fill it. Larry Crabb, in his book, Understanding People, puts it this way. In each fallen image bearer, there is a hollow core. This core is a center of thirst, just as the deer's parched throat is the place where the craving for water is felt. The hollow core is experienced as a deeply personal thirst, a, a yearning for something that we cannot satisfy in and of ourselves. The hollow core, the deeply personal thirst. It's like Blaise Pascal is saying, this, this longing for happiness, for the sense of fulfillment and completeness. Crabb goes on to explain in his understanding what that search is after, what, what, what that longing, what that craving in man's hollow core of his soul is after. He says, first of all, mankind wants meaningful relationship. He said, we long to be in relationship with someone who is strong enough to be constant, someone whose love is untainted by even a trace of manipulative self-interest, someone who really wants me. Deep longing for relationship. We're created in the image of God. Let's make man in our image after our likeness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, harmonious relationship, and it's imprinted into man's very psyche, his spiritual DNA, the longing for meaningful relationship. And then Crabb says man wants meaningful impact. Meaningful impact. We want to leave a mark on our world, a real enduring difference that matters. We want a sense of I think it was Robert McGee who wrote a book in the 80s that called uh, The Search for Significance. I, I, want to, I want a sense of, I want something that will secure my relationships with people. I want something that will make me feel significant, that I'm contributing something to life. And you remove those, you remove all hope in life. It's an endless search. We thirst for the warmth of true love and for the thrill of real meaning, writes Crabbe. So when we encounter an unsaved neighbor or relative, someone who doesn't know Jesus, when we encounter them, what, what do we see? Do we see them as people desperately longing, craving for something to fill the hollow core in their soul? Whether they can articulate that or not is beside the point. How do we view people? Do we see them thirsting, longing, craving for meaningful relationship, for a sense of significance, impact, and never finding it? How did Jesus see people? You saw a few little examples of that this morning already. Let me share with you a couple more. Like in Mark chapter 2. Take your Bibles there real quickly. Mark chapter 2. His encounter with a tax collector by the name of Levi, also known as Matthew. Mark chapter 2. 
Verse 13, it says that he went out again by the seashore, Jesus did, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. But it says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, Levi wasn't sitting in the tax booth to pay his taxes. If you know the story, Levi was there to, he was the tax collector in the old term. He was the publican. He was the, well, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, but tax collectors were the, they were kind of the, they were the sophisticated thugs of the first century. They were the ancient mafia. They were the, they were the people who everyone loved to hate. Um, Roman government would come. They would set a tax levy uh, oppressively against the Jewish people. But then the tax collectors, in their scandalous, deviant ways, they, they would um, up it a little bit, maybe double it, maybe sometimes triple it. People didn't know. Roman government was requiring the taxes, and so here it is, pay this tax, and they would pay what the Romans wanted, and then they would pocket the rest. And they got very, very wealthy off the backs of their own people because these tax collectors were, Romans got Jews to do this. They were extortionists. Had the heavy hand of Rome over them. Get very rich off the backs of their own people. And so they were mentioned in the same breath as murderers and thieves, tax collectors. Something else about tax collectors, though, is that they were very lonely. Very lonely. They were Jews um, whom no Jew would want to associate with. And the Romans didn't like them because they were Jews. They were a people without a people. Lonely, isolated, shriveled up hollow cores of souls. An infinite abyss of deep inner longing and never finding it. And yet, there's the amazing thing. Jesus says, follow me, Levi. I want you to be one of my disciples. Verse 15 continues, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Jesus was invited to Matthew's house, Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. There's an interesting gathering. Tax collectors, sinners, the despised of the, the dregs of society, and, and the Son of God, the King of kings, and his disciples sitting there. And they were following him some point, word gets out, verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, hey, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, good question. Why indeed? Why would he soil himself with such despicable characters? Why? Verse 17, hearing this, Jesus said to him, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
You see, Jesus looked at this motley crew of despicable sinners, and what did he see? He saw the hole in their souls. He saw the infinite abyss of spiritual death and darkness. And he was the great physician. He had the antidote, and he loved them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that would save a wretch. Another story, another familiar story over in John chapter 4. Turn there real quickly, John chapter 4. It's the woman from Sychar, known as the woman that Jesus met at the well. Verse 5, John 4, verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. And verse 7 says, And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said, Give me a drink. Jesus is there, of course, to quench his physical thirst. And here comes a woman that was absolutely a dry well a parched soul, infinitely thirsty. All life had been sapped from her. This is a woman who was caught in the, in the meaninglessness, the futility of life. The infinite abyss she had certainly experienced over and over and over again. Who knows what the story is? Verse 18 tell us, tells us that she had five husbands and the man she's shacking up with it wasn't her own husband at the moment. Searching, craving for something, a relationship of significance to make a difference in this world and yet trying every path to get there. Hedonism, materialism, sensuality, you name it, every imaginable vice. She was a dry well, empty and enduring a meaningless, infinite abyss of nothingness. And she comes to draw water. She has no friends because no one would, of, of any reputation would ever want to be seen with her. And she met Jesus. And what does Jesus tell her? Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up until eternal life. What is Jesus offering this woman? He's offering her an end to her search. To end her vain, empty, futile pursuit of nothingness, trying to find, as Pascal says, the craving for 
happiness. As Crabbe said, this, this sense of, of deep, lasting relationship, of something that will fill the whole of my soul, a sense of impact, of, a sense of significance. He's offering her the one solution, and it's himself. And why does he offer this to her? Because he sees her differently. And he cared for her. She's a sick soul who needed the touch of the great physician. It's what he came for. I didn't come to call the righteous, but to sinners. It's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick, the great physician. He saw her differently. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came, he said, to to serve and not be served. And he looked at people and he saw them differently. And that's exactly, by the way, what she got, living water. She got something different and found the end of her search. She went back to town, remember the story? And told all the people in the city, hey, you, you got to meet this guy who's told me everything about my life. He's a game changer. He looked past my infinite abyss and he's filled my soul with living water. People looked at Matthew And what did they see? A despicable reprobate. And they hated him. People looked at this woman of Sychar, and what did they see? A dirty prostitute that you wouldn't want to be caught dead near. And what did Jesus see? Parched thirsty souls, dry wells of a life, hollow cores, infinite abyss of meaningless, of emptiness, of futility of life, created for something better and finding it nowhere. And he pursued them in love and he forever changed their life. Amazing, isn't it? So, how do we see people? How do we see people? A self-centered good-for-nothing that should be avoided? A racist bigot whose company you would never want to be seen with? A fortacious hussy who has more STDs than you'd want to count? A homeless ne'er-do-well who's simply a scammer of the system. Oh, that's all he's after. He's simply scamming the system. Here's the point of this message. Folks, it's time to put on the Jesus glasses. It's time to see people differently, like Jesus did, for who they really are people with a hollow core in their soul trying to fill it with all sorts of things. Yep, they can be very obnoxious. They can be very sinful. They can even be very evil. 
They're caught in the infinite abyss of sin. Longing for meaningful relationship, longing to have a sense of impact of some sort in this world. And it always ending up on a dead-end street because their, their vain pursuits get them nowhere. Get them nowhere. And so there's some questions that we need to ask. Questions that, um, like, how many Levi's have crossed your path in the last week or two? How many w- women from Sychar have you run across? By the way, we'll never know the Levi's and the Sycharian women as long as we stay in our four walls and our holy huddles, the four walls of our comfort Christianity, our ivory palaces of fellowship. And we'll never know the joy of influencing someone to Christ if we don't put on the Jesus glasses. By the way, some of you may have been a Matthew. Some of you may have been a woman of Sychar and encountered Jesus. We'd love to hear your story. It needs to be shared. So, let me wrap up. Let me suggest four questions. We need to be asking these four questions as we encounter people in our neighborhoods, at work, at school. Let me just suggest these four questions. Here's, here's the first one. I put it up here already. Why did, ask yourself, why did they do what they just did? So you're, you're rubbing shoulders with someone at work or wherever it might be. And they, they pull out, they do one of their infinite, abysmal, hollow core things. Because that's what unsaved people do. Stop and ask the question, why did they just do what they did? That transgendered teen, why did they just do what they did? That obnoxious neighbor, why would someone in the right mind do that? Ask the question, what in the world is going on in their soul? Here's a second question. Why did they say what they just said? Good night, did that just come out of their mouth? Stay away from those people. They're toxic. Ask the question, so why did they say what they just said? That flamboyant homosexual, that arrogant politician. Why did they just say what they said? Here's the third question. Could it have come from the infinite abyss of their longing souls? That quiet, introverted relative who avoids conflict at all costs, why do they do that? Is there, could, could it come from this hole in their soul? A fourth question. And so how might I point them to God? The only one who can fill their souls. The only solution to their deepest longings. How might I 
influence them to God. It's putting on the Jesus glasses. I, I realize there, there are a lot of ramifications to this message. It's probably a whole class to flesh out some of the boundary issues. I'm, I'm just personally convicted that it's time to look at people differently and not respond to the infinite abyss that's spewing out of the darkness of their soul and see them for who they really are. They are people who need Jesus. They need someone to ask those questions. Why are they doing this? Why are they saying it? Could it come and be sourced from the hole in their soul? And God, what can I do to influence them to you? Because you're the only one that can end their search for significance, for meaning, for hope. What can I do? That's an amazing truth. God wants to use us to influence other people to himself. But it begins by seeing people differently. It begins by putting on the Jesus glasses and then pursuing them and moving into their life with grace and truth and God-like love. Like, like people did for Brianna. Listen to her. I've been at FBC for about eight years, and prior to that, I don't remember a single time that I had stepped foot in a church. As a teenager, I looked to almost anything and everything to satisfy what was empty in my life and my soul. Um, I lacked hope and purpose, and so I thought if I keep myself busy enough, if I drive myself hard enough, maybe then I'll be satisfied. Or maybe if enough people like me and I have the approval of others, I'll know who I am finally and I'll feel settled and at peace. And of course, I did not find the answers I was looking for. But a ray of light in my life was a family who took interest in me and welcomed me into their own, um, a family that came to FBC. I was friends with a girl from high school and she had known the Lord from a young age, but had kind of been driven away into the cares of the world just as I was. And so her life looked pretty similar to mine, um, you know, derived of hope and looking to whether it was partying or friends or all the things that the world promises to give us hope but didn't. And it wasn't until her family had confronted her on the things that she was doing um, and the Lord had been doing a work in her heart that she came to the point of wanting to leave it all behind and walk with the Lord. And so me, knowing nothing of him, but getting to see and have a front row seat to the changes that came in her life, the settled peace about her, the joy that I just didn't ever know or experience was something that really took my interest. And 
her family who could have shunned me for knowing the things I had been doing and not wanting me a part of her daughter's life um, welcomed me into their family just as they had before. So there's a specific moment that I remember um, getting a call from her dad and I knew that she had gotten in trouble from the things that we'd been doing and so I was really afraid because especially in my family um, and my experiences with my own father, I was expecting a lot of anger and disappointment. Um, and when he called me and explained what had happened, the things he'd found out about that we'd been doing, I was met with nothing but grace. Of course, he, you know, called me to live better. And um, what I remember him saying was, there's so much more to life than the things that you're doing, and um, shared the gospel with me in that moment. And so when I was expecting to be met with anger and frustration and we don't want you a part of our life anymore, instead I was met with the good news. And so I think that is probably the biggest moment I look back on. And then there was countless days sitting in their kitchen where their mom just patiently said, so you're still doing these things? And I'd say, yeah. And she said, How, how's that going for you? <laughs> but they, they took the time with me because it took time for me to kind of come to my own conclusions. And, and so they were ordinary people that loved me and patiently told me the truth about the Lord and brought me to church. Um, and it was months of searching and seeking um, until I came to a point just alone, me and the Lord, where he answered a simple prayer. And it was a silly request, really, but um, to me, it was so impactful because if God was really real and cared about my silly little needs, um, clearly I could believe that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. And so in a moment of faith, I was saved um, and God took me on the path that I was traveling on that was getting darker by the minute and just took my life and shifted it completely. God just does use ordinary people um, to bring people that you would never expect to come to the Lord to know him.